Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Tonight, the Russian foreign minister calling the arrest of Maria Bettina unacceptable. Nice, nice. She's the 29-year-old Russian gun rights activist accused of being a Kremlin agent. In a phone call with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Sergei Lavrov complaining about the actions of U.S. law enforcement, saying the charges against Bettina are fabricated. But U.S. prosecutors accuse her of going to extreme measures to infiltrate the American political system even offering sex in exchange for a position in one special interest organization. Bettina, according to sources, getting her direction from one of Vladimir Putin's allies, Alexander Torshin, the two seen here at the National Prayer Breakfast. Prosecutors believe she was trying to advance the interests of the Russia Federation, even getting close enough to then-candidate Donald Trump to ask this question. Do you want to continue the politics of sanctions? I believe I would get along very nicely with Putin. Butina, through an attorney, denies the charges against her, calling the allegations overblown. And tonight, ABC News learning she may have also had the financial support of a Russian billionaire. A source familiar with testimony Bettina provided to a Senate Intelligence Committee last spring telling ABC News she identified Konstantin Nikolaev as a source of financial support and that alleged support from the billionaire with investments in U.S. energy and tech companies part of a network of wealthy Russian oligarchs that led federal prosecutors to believe she was an extreme flight risk leading to her arrest. Wow. <laughs> So, first of all, I found this uh, this this bit on ABCNewsGo.com, and I mean, it's such a complete news package. <laughs> I was just surprised, and so I have to give them credit where credit is due. What a well done piece! Um, it, all of the information you need in like a minute and forty five seconds. I was so grateful to find it because I've I've seen a couple stories about this woman. And at first I thought it was fake news. And then I started to see, you know, more links appear and there were different credible news organizations that I could go to. And I thought, okay, this is real. This woman is real. Um, she really did offer, you know, these types of activities in exchange. It doesn't, no one seems to be able to corroborate that anyone actually took her up on that, but wow. So welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington at Stacey on the right on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the streams on YouTube, Periscope and Facebook. Uh, thanks for being with us today. And um, I'm sorry, I, I've i been talking about today. Yeah, today's Friday. Did you see how I just almost thought that today was Thursday? I know it's Friday. It's Friday. Um, so a U.S. senator is actually pushing the Treasury Department to investigate the relationships between these companies and major weapons and ammunition fact, uh, manufacturers in Russia. And I just find the whole thing kind of fascinating. Um, and I, I think one of the things that, that is happening with this woman, um, this, it's the, he's calling for the investigation of companies' relationships with Russian arms manufacturers. And you've got this, this it, it's all working together. It's all, it's all just crazy pants. And so, one of the things that that going into a Friday, going into the weekend, you know, you're not going to be thinking about Russia over the weekend. But there are parts of our government that are doing a great job at trying to figure out exactly what's happened. And I'm not completely mistrustful of our government, but I'm also not just sitting back and thinking, oh, everything's going fantastically. There's an element to 
some of the leadership at some of the agencies that is really bent on seeing President Trump removed from office and subverting the will of the people. And then there's a, a bunch of career service people who they work in a much more silent fashion. They're not going to be on television. They're not going to be, you know, on CNN or, or anything like that. And those people are really working towards justice. So whatever direction that leads them in. And they're the ones that I'm hoping we're going to see just the fruit of their work, the fruit of their labor coming to fruition. And um, I just, I sincerely hope that that's what's going to happen. So I don't know if you guys heard this other news. We have a ton of news. One of, one of the biggest pieces for today is our continuation of a discussion about the jobs report, jobs, uh, fewer jobs created in the month of July than in the month of June, but still fantastic news. We've got 155,965,000 people employed in June, which is the 11th record setter under President Trump. Following last month's strong, unemplo- strong employment report, strong employment report, numbers released on Friday were even better in some respects. The Labor Department's Bureau of Labor Statistics has a record 155,965 people were employed in July. And this is a record, an 11th record breaker since President Trump took office 19 months ago. So first of all, can we just sit back for a second and go, whew, 19 months. It's been a whirlwind ride. We haven't loved all of it, but I'm not tired of winning yet when it comes to the economy and what President Trump has been able to do. The quote from President Trump in his campaign rally Thursday night, last night, he said, our economy is soaring. Our jobs are booming. Factories are pouring back into our country. They're coming in from all over the world. We are defending our workers. And that's, that's good stuff. Really good stuff. The unemployment rate edged down to 3.9%. And, uh, I think when we drill down, the numbers are good in other places as well. Like, for instance, polling shows that Donald Trump is enjoying uh, well over 20% approval rating within the black community. Rasmussen Report says 29% of blacks are happy with President Trump. 29%. Now, For any other group, well, besides Hispanics, you'd say, oh, that's not good. We're talking about a group that has traditionally given less than 10% approval on anything to Republicans. So now Donald Trump's not your traditional Republican, but he's definitely exactly what we're looking for right now when it comes to someone who's a business person who understands the economy and what they're going to do. And so I just, you know, can we just give a little bit of credit where it's due? Well, we give the criticism where it's due, right? I've, I've criticized the president on areas where I've not been happy. I've been very stark in my assessment of some of the moral stuff, um, you know. But here we are with this approval rating with the black community. That's people who've gotten jobs. That's people who've gotten raises and bonuses. That's people who are happy with their tax reform. This is a group of people who are a little more difficult to please in some aspects. But I, I don't know about you, but I've bumped into... I remember one conversation in particular where uh, I I realized while I was out shopping that the front left tire on my minivan, I'd driven over a nail or a screw or something, and it was I could actually hear it. I got out of the car, I went to a store, came back out, and I noticed that the tire looked like it was low. I walked up to it and got down next to it to screw the little cap on, and it was literally hissing. 
So I drove home and stopped at the gas station near where we were living at the time. And the guy who owns the station, it's really more like a, a body shop where they'll, he basically was going to plug my tire for me. And so he puts the car up and one of his employees is plugging the tire and he starts talking to me about politics. And at the time, so this is a few years ago, and I hadn't done as much media locally here in St. Louis. So I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't know I was politically minded or a commentator or anything like that. So we start chatting and he says that, you know, he's, he's concerned about, this is obviously during the Obama administration. He's concerned about the Republicans taking over, you know, if the Republicans win the white house after Obama, you know, what will they do with the economy? And, and they tend to side with big banks, et cetera, et cetera. And I started talking about, the lower taxes and less regulations and the possibility of us having that meant that, you know, even even if you don't like the affinity of Republicans siding with big businesses, tax reform helps everyone. Lower taxes helps everyone. And how that could be something that could be really good. And then he talked about the financial meltdown and how no one was held accountable. And I talked about how that's that's not a Republican thing. That's a government thing where we have government officials who oversee the activities of certain people in the private sector and people aren't prosecuted for things. Just like this was before Hillary Clinton had gotten completely away with the email scandal, obviously. But I named off a few instances where we're talking about a nation where people who are in government are not held accountable. And he looked at me and he said, you're right about that. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm just telling you because I'm, you know, I, you are a business owner. And if you did something like that here at your business, you would, you'd have ramifications, but these people don't. And as we were talking and, you know, he's, he's a black guy. He owns this, this body shop. It's very successful and he's obviously doing pretty well. He's got employees and I'm just there to get my tire plugged. And we ended up talking for about 15 minutes. The guy came in he was like, your tire's ready, you know? And we talked for about five minutes past the time that the guy plugged the tire. And so as I was getting up to leave, he said to me, I, he said, I don't, I don't know you. I don't think I've ever seen you before. I was like, well, we live in, in this neighborhood. He said, oh, okay, okay. Um, he said, well, I, I live in the neighborhood too. I was like, well, you know, awesome. And he said, I've never talked to a Republican who just talked about the issues. And he said, you didn't seem like you were really trying to convince me. And I was like, well, I wish you would be a Republican too. But the fact is, I just was talking about what I know and you were talking about what you know and I I respect your your position he was like I respect yours too and I I think you've you know informed me on a couple things and I don't believe that that interaction with that man was so like crazily unique that you can't have that same conversation with any two people the fact that he and I were both black doesn't preclude that same kind of conversation from happening among other people and and I'm saying that even in this heightened negativity that we're all kind of marinating in, even in the kind of language that we see coming out of people on the left and, you know, some of the far right folks too. We're, we're not completely without fault over on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. People are going to be people on no matter what their politics. But I truly believe that we still have an opportunity to communicate with each other. In the end, we're still going to church together. We're still going to the same grocery stores Our kids are still going to the same schools. Yes, a huge portion of our populace is infected with Trump derangement syndrome. But there are still multiple tens of millions of people who are not. People who honestly, whether they like the president or not, they're willing 
to experience the benefits of his policies that work, they're willing to give that stuff a try. I mean, look at the tax reform package. The Democrats tried like the Dickens to stop it, but they couldn't. And now that it's in place, we don't have anybody protesting about that. We do not have Americans en masse protesting the tax reform package. Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters' statements about the tax reform package and how it's a scam are not representative of the majority of the Democrats in their party. Not the activists, not the people you see on television, not the people you see organizing these stinky tent cities and stuff like that. I'm talking about just regular everyday Democrats who they probably think their taxes are too high. I can't tell you how many times a person who is openly a Democrat has told me that they don't like the, their tax rate. They're willing to pay it because they think the money goes to the needy. But if they could find another way to take care of that problem, they would want their taxes to be lower. That is, I mean, who you'd have to be a fool if someone would say you can keep more of your money and you say, no, I want the government to have it. Only a fool talks like that. I have met a couple people like that, but they're not the, they're not the norm. So we do still have room for communication and conversation on what's going on in this country. And I think that may be the, the part that's, that motivates the Democrats to the dangerous rhetoric that we see. And when I say the Democrats in that context, I'm talking about the activists in the party, the ones who are thought leaders and try to shape the conversation. As long as we're all spitting in each other's faces and yelling about Russia, we can't talk about all of the common ground that we have on so many issues. I think one of the issues that we have a ton of common ground on is immigration as well, besides the economy. And the reason I say that is because poll after poll after poll, it has been consistent, even in the era that we currently live in, where almost every media apparatus advocates for an open border or some form of lawlessness as it pertains to immigration. Polls show a steady 67 to 74 percent of Americans want to see controlled immigration and they don't want to see illegal immigration increased. Even with every media outlet except Fox advocating for it. That means on the ground, common sense reigns supreme for people who are working and putting their pants on one leg at a time, paying taxes, working to feed their families. That's why they don't want us talking to each other. That's why they want us yelling and screaming. All right, when we get back, we're going to have Drew Johnson, Senior Fellow at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. He's going to be with us talking about energy and energy industry. So stay right there. When our health insurance renewal notice arrived last fall, my wife and I made the decision to drop our plan. With the monthly premiums and deductible, we'd have to pay $30,000 just to use it. So we did our homework and switched to MediShare. The cost savings are incredible, over $500 a month, and we don't have to pay for services we don't need or don't agree with. Then out of the blue, she had to have emergency surgery. Scary stuff. $150,000 in hospital bills and MediShare members took care of everything. All we paid was our small portion. I'm a doctor who's been in healthcare for 20 years and this is one of the most impressive programs I've ever seen. Thank God she's fully recovered. And now we're telling everyone about MediShare. Call 855-PSALM-23 to find out how much you can save on your healthcare. MediShare, call 855-PSALM-23. 
That's 855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Perhaps you've heard of the latest environmental movement to ban plastic straws. Even though they're small, they are large in number. The activists claim that there are millions of straws used every day. That number seems high, at least to me, since I avoid using plastic straws. I figure I don't need a straw when I drink water or beverage at home. Why do I need one in a restaurant? And if I go to a Starbucks, I have a personal cup with a straw that I rinse out when I'm done. As Christians, we should practice sound stewardship of the environment, but I also think we need to think carefully about the impact of a plastic straw ban. On the one hand, all these straws end up as litter in landfills and in the ocean. On the other hand, there are some people, those with disabilities and small children, for example, that actually need a straw to drink. At the moment, the biggest plastic pollution challenge is in our oceans, and plastic straws aren't the problem. Large plastic floating islands in the ocean are a major environmental issue. Perhaps the best known is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch that floats between California and Japan. The nonprofit Ocean Cleanup has discovered that the Pacific Patch is much larger than originally estimated. But plastic straws and plastic bags aren't the reason. Nearly half of it was fishing nets. When combined with ropes and line, it accounted for a majority of the trash. The rest included hard plastics like crates and bottle caps. And when Ocean Cleanup looked at food packaging, they found that nearly a third was written in Japanese and nearly a third was written in Chinese. None of this is to argue against the reducing of our use of plastic straws, but it does remind us that if we want to address the problem of plastic pollution, we should focus more attention on things other than plastic straws. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the show. Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right. I'm also the co-chair of National Center's Advisory Council Project 21. You can find out more at nationalcenter.org. I am so happy to welcome our next guest to the program. He is someone that I greatly respect because one of my favorite groups is the uh, Taxpayer Protection Alliance because they work on behalf of, you guessed it, taxpayers. And if it's anything I want to pay less of, it's taxes. We have kids. We have a dog who needs to be groomed on a regular basis. And I have a boot thing that I'm trying to work through. So I need more of my money in my pocket, which is fantastic to have an opportunity to talk about what's going on with the energy industry. Drew, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me today, Stacey. So let's talk about this. We've got the energy industry paying it forward in Missouri. What's going on? Yeah, this is a really interesting um, sort of offshoot of a bunch of good news, really, with the energy industry, which is, uh, you know, things are getting better. The air is getting cleaner. The water is getting cleaner. Uh, energy is getting cheaper for Americans. And this is sort of an extension of that where um, some of the uh, federal leasing that's going on, both um, – in uh, federal lands and offshore, and this is uh, offshore in particular, uh, the money the, that the um, energy companies are paying for the leases are going back to the states, and the states are getting to decide what to do with that money. So uh, in Missouri, for example, uh, you guys have the opportunity to put that towards uh, parks and greenways or state parks, and a lot of it's a, um, a matching grant program, and some of it just comes to states uh, to spend how they want. Okay, so 
Um, we happen to be big Missouri Parks people in my family. We like to take our bikes and ride the bikes. We like to take the kids with their rollerblades and do it. Now that they're teenagers, we just go and sometimes we just run around the park or walk around the parks. And a ton of our parks here in Missouri, you drive an hour out or two hours out and it's just like basically someplace that you walk, but you have these amazing vistas of hills and valleys and all of that because Missouri is very green and very forested. And all of these parks have some kind of little historical monuments that you can learn something and a little building that's open for part of the day that you can go into as well. And so when you say we can redirect that money to that, is that something that they've said they're going to do or is it just an option that we could utilize? It's actually something that's been going on for a few years now. And uh, the states do have a lot of leeway in, uh, as far as how they can use that money. Uh, but for most states, and for Missouri, I believe it's a couple million dollars uh, that uh, the basically different uh, agencies within the state can decide how it's used. And uh, from my understanding, for most states, it ends up either in state parks or uh, with um, – wildlife programs and things like that. So, yeah, a lot of the, the trails you're talking about, a lot of the uh, the state parks and the greenways and things like that, uh, it's actually the, the evil energy companies that the left loves to beat up on uh, is subsidizing a lot of that. So Missouri taxpayers don't have to pay uh, full freight for those. Oh, my. Another instance of people that were industries that are supposed to be the devil doing something nice for us, how will we cope with this news? I, we might need a few days to just lay on our fainting couches and consider the totality of what you've just shared. One of the funny things about uh, doing some of the research I've done the last few weeks about uh, environmental hysteria, for lack of better terms, and you know uh, that you know. I found Al Gore uses 20 times more electricity at his house than the average person, and that's sort of how I got into this this sort of research. And I realized very quickly that this you know this industry that's so demonized is actually the real reason why the air is so much cleaner than it was you know in the 70s and 80s when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the air is actually. <laughs> something like 70% cleaner than it was 40, per, 40 years ago. And that's basically because of all the natural gas that's being used instead of coal and the developments that uh, energy companies have put into making things cleaner and greener because they know, first of all, they, they don't want to be the people responsible for all this pollution. But they also know that we as Americans are concerned about the environment. We want our kids to grow up in, you know, in, a, in a clean world and breathe clean air and drink clean water. And so they've really put in billions of dollars every year to try to make their products cleaner. And so that's another thing that's always, you know, as a, as a taxpayer watchdog and advocate, when I see all this money that's going to uh, renewables, that never really turns out. It never really amounts to anything. And then these um, energy companies, these natural gas and oil companies, spend all these billions of dollars out of their own pocket to make things cleaner. It's sort of... It shows you how the market works. Mm. It does. It, and so let's talk about that a little bit, Drew, because you just highlighted something that I wish they would talk about on CBS or whenever they bring up something having to do with the energy industry. I wish they would kind of just nutshell what you've just shared to, to kind of give Americans an idea of, first of all, these aren't big, huge companies run by cyborgs or robots. Americans work for the energy companies that are in our country. So Americans are helping to make these decisions to 
clean up different processes or to change the way things are done so that they're cleaner and that the, over time we've seen these huge improvements, which are largely unreported. Um, when you talk about this, it's like this, to me, it, it sounds like it's like an engine that keeps getting stronger and going faster every decade, which is the push for our energy companies to be cleaner, more efficient, but still deliver the same level of, of, of uh, service. You know, we, we all have air conditioning. We all have central heating. We all use all of these things without a second thought. Um, is, it, is it something that it just goes on behind the scenes and, and most Americans are never going to be aware of it? Or do you see them doing maybe a public uh, information campaign to kind of inform us of how our energy companies are the drivers behind this? You know, I think it boils down to one simple thing, and that's that, and, and you know this being a radio host, and I know this being a columnist, you know, what America loves to hear are the scary stories and the bad stories. And um, there's, you know, especially with the sort of green, alar- green alarmism that I see with, you know, the Al Gores and the Leonardo DiCaprios and all these sort of people, they want to create this almost like a, it's like a Marvel comic of us versus the world and we're killing the earth and we've got to save the earth. When in reality, uh, all these good news stories just don't get reported the way they should. And um, I think that really a lot of the environmental groups need to gin up uh, kind of scare tactics to keep the money flowing and to tell their story. But really a lot of the uh, environmental problems that we had you know, a generation or two ago have been alleviated. And, you know, government is a small part of that, sure, but the bigger part is just a a corporate social responsibility and these companies taking it on themselves to improve their products and make things cleaner, to make make them more appealing to to people, to consumers, to people like you and I who buy these things. But the other thing is that they've actually figured out ways to capture some of, like methane, for example, uh, when natural gas is being produced, methane uh, is released into the air, and that was a big cause years back for uh, a lot of pollution, a lot of emissions. And they realized that they could capture that methane, reuse it, so it actually you know benefits their bottom line while being good for the environment. So it's it's one of those things where you know doing the right thing also helps them out financially, and it's just you know like I said earlier, the market at work. It is. And I've, I've learned a lot, like, you know, when you go on vacation, Drew, you get um, the opportunity to take a tour of something and then you go inside. This is this would happen to us. We went to Galveston, Texas, which is not exactly known for its beaches. But the primary attraction, in my opinion, is that they have the Oceana, which is a it was formerly an oil rig, an operational oil rig that they have moored into their bay there. And they it's a museum and you can learn all about the energy industry in there, specifically oil. And so we went into it thinking, yeah, this should be a good way to kill a few minutes. We were in there for over an hour. And I learned so much about how, well, first of all, that so much of what we touch and use every day is made of oil. And second of all, how instrumental the oil industry has been in cleaning up and taking care of our environment anywhere where they drill, they they try to leave things better than they found it, whether it's on the seafloor or whether it's wherever they put down any of their equipment, their their end game is to extract the energy and then leave it better than they found it. And they utilize every bit of whatever they pull out for some purpose and that they use technology in amazingly innovative ways that things that you would never even consider that go into producing oil to refining it, to bringing it to shore. 
all of these things are highly technological and very advanced and really could only happen here, you know, first. It's our own creative energies at work. And so we left there and I thought to myself, you know, I really consider myself to be pretty well informed, but look what I've learned. And it sounds similar to what you're explaining about how our energy companies are really taking the lead. They're, they haven't just tried to take it. They're in the lead on cleaning our environment and keeping it really just as wholesome as possible for us to continue to extract energy and live the way that we do. Absolutely. One of the interesting sort of factoids I found was that um, energy generation today actually produces uh, less CO2 emissions and less, the EPA basically has six emissions that they're really concerned about. All those are down less than they were 30 years ago. So even though they're producing so much more energy, because obviously the population is up probably 80 million people in the, in the states since uh, 30 years ago, but uh, the actual emissions and the pollution are down. And that's all because of basically these investments that they've made into natural gas, which obviously is a lot cleaner than coal, and uh, taking advantage of some of the technological improvements like you were just talking about. And one of the things that really it frustrates me when I look at the rest of the world and the sort of environmental activist response to things, is that the only reason that we're able to, in America, uh, get to a position where we can you know, reduce emissions and, and we're leading the, the world as far as uh, emissions reductions. And th- the reason we're able to do that is because we were able to develop as a nation. We're able to basically get rich enough to where we know that our kids are going to be fed. We know that our kids are going to be educated. We know that we're going to have clean water. And we see these other countries that aren't as fortunate. And rather than allowing them to develop so they can get to the point where they have the, you know, the leisure to worry about uh, how they produce their energy and reducing emissions and things like that, we want to say, no, don't don't develop keep you know making coal out of the trees that you cut down and and burn oil for heat and things like that the environmentalists just need to understand that the way to make the world cleaner is to be more like america and be in a position to have the leisure to have the luxury to worry about that Mm. it's such a great illustration that you just shared there i mean i I hope that, you know, it's because it's kind of like Good News Friday. We're covering a lot of news products or a lot of news items, but we're also, we have two great interviews today. You are kind of rounding out the show today with what I consider to be excellent news. And I think it's important for us. I, I understand the whole environmentalist thing is it comes from a place of people wanting to save the environment. And so at the very like impetus of it, it comes from a place of people wanting to be good but it has turned into a hysteria that's actually detrimental to what they claim they want to see happen. It's more technology, not less, more creativity and more expertise in these arenas that brings us to a place where the kind of news that you're reporting and writing about can actually occur. And so I've got this, uh, the link, I'll put it in the live stream. Secretary Zinke announces over $61 million for states to support parks and outdoor recreation. This is across the country. It's great news. And it's just more of the work that you're doing at the Taxpayer Protection Alliance. Can you give us the website where we can find out more? Absolutely. It's uh, protectingtaxpayers.org. And uh, we basically spend our, not, our time, like you were saying, in the, in the lead-in, uh, making sure you pay less money in taxes and the tax money that you do pay uh, is spent more effectively, more efficiently. 
I love it. It's one of my favorite organizations. I know I, I can't share all the organizations that are my favorite, but it's especially awesome when I get the email. I'm like, I know Drew. I'm happy to have him on the show to talk about what they're doing. So thank you for joining us on a Friday. It's, uh, I hope you're going to have a fantastic weekend. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about the excellent things you guys are doing and uh, reporting on. Thanks so much, Stacey. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for joining the show. Drew Johnson, Senior Fellow at the Taxpayer Protection Alliance. Um, I, I love it. I'm, I posted a link to the announcement. Uh, it's on Facebook now, so you can get that and click the link when you feel like it. You know, don't, don't feel pressured, but it's there for you on the Stacey on the Right Show Facebook page. And you can see the announcement from the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, who has been so phenomenal um, I really feel like he's doing a fantastic job since he's taken over that position under the Trump administration. And I'm excited to see him do more, excited to see Drew do more over at uh, TPA. And uh, I'm excited to have more here on this program. So last segment of the show, we'll come in with some audio from a Democrat saying that it's clear Russia was after both parties, which is quite an announcement for him to make. And then we'll take your calls. If you'd like to round out the week with calls from the listeners, I certainly would. I'd love to hear from you. 866-963-2037. That's 866-963-2037. You can join the program if you call that number. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, And I also want to highlight a little bit, just a smidge, um, so if you head over to StaceyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button, you don't miss anything over there. You'll get all of the information that we share and push out. Um, it's for the newsletter, which comes once a week, uh, unless I'm on vacation or something like that. Um, and then you can also find out more at Stacey on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. Those accounts are also kind of totally different. Twitter, more news and information. Instagram, obviously it's just pictures, so it's kind of a cross-section of our entire lives, which is super fun. Um, I'm looking forward to our wonderful guests that we're going to be adding to the program. We already have, in my opinion, the best guests, but we'll be adding even more fantastic guests um, starting next week. We'll be starting off the week with Janine Pirro of Fox News uh, on Monday's program, and we'll just be progressing through. We're going to speak to Um, Walker Wildman on the program. We're going to have some more guests over from American Family Radio and other things. So great plans in the work for you. So excited about it. Go to AFR.net to learn more. You can go to UrbanFamilyTalk.com to learn more. And we will see you right after these important messages for more Stacey on the Right. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Have you noticed how obsessed leftists are with painting anyone who disagrees with them as wanting people to die? This is interesting because Democrats support Planned Parenthood, which is responsible for the deaths of over 317,000 unborn American babies in the year 2017. That's more than the population of the city of St. Louis. It's true that the mothers carrying those babies requested those deaths. It's true that abortion is legal in this country, but it doesn't make it right or moral. No matter what political party we claim, it is our responsibility as Christians to obey God's word, no matter what the law may allow. It's instructive to remember that at one point in this country, the Supreme Court of the United States deemed certain members of our society as property. Our nation's highest court has since come to the moral and correct conclusion about the humanity of all persons 
except those yet to be born. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki. From airing the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference coming up August 17th and 18th. The list of speakers is amazing. We have Ryan Baumberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife Jan, Stacy Washington, Lonnie Poindexter, Pastor Dexter Sanders, and we'll be there too. There's a direct attack by the enemy on marriage and family, and babies in the womb are treated like political footballs instead of life. We want to encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. If we can get our families on track, a lot of society's problems could be solved. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is from Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. Donald Trump's America. President Trump tweeting his thanks to Kim Jong-un after the North Korean leader sent him a letter to follow up on their June summit. The president also saying he looks forward to seeing Kim soon. In that same message, the president expressed gratitude for Kim, keeping his promise on returning the remains of American service members killed during the Korean War. Vice President Pence in Hawaii to receive the suspected remains Wednesday. To see those uh, uh, 55 flag draped cases be carried so solemnly in and not just as a vice president, but uh, as the son of a combat veteran from the Korean War, it was uh, it was deeply moving for me. Kim's letter arriving the same day as the repatriation and renewed questions over the North's willingness to denuclearize. A report on Monday indicating Pyongyang is building missiles in the same facility where the country built ballistic missiles that could hit the U.S. At the White House, Doug McElway, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. This is one where there is no Democratic or Republican answer, since clearly the goal of our adversaries is not to favor one party over the other. It was to wreak havoc and split divisions. And um, I think this uh, committee under your leadership is uh, trying to take this issue on in the appropriate way. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, that's almost a non... Like, that's anticlimactic, isn't it? That he has admitted something that we all kind of know to be true. It's just weird to hear him say it. Um, I think, yeah, it's just weird to hear him say it. Welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Great to be with you. And what we're now looking at, or the last segment of the show, if you'd love to call in, um, the number is 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. And um, we are going to be taking, in the last segment of the first hour of the show, we'll be taking calls uh, on a regular basis. So we're hoping that uh, we'll get a chance to chat with you, and it'll be exciting to be able to do that. Uh, starting on Monday, we'll just be revamping things a little bit. Not much will change. It's going to be still the same show, same same bat channel. It's going to be fantastic. Um, so, yeah, uh, over on The New York Times, you may have heard a little bit about the story. I'm just, I'm kind of flabbergasted by it because it seems like in the Me Too era and the era of people not being allowed to say anything that might be even slightly incendiary, that this wouldn't stand, but yet here it is. Um, 
the editorial board over at the New York Times has added a, an editorial writer to their staff who has a history of racially charged tweets. Um, and this is after they gave basically the, the, the sack to a writer over her insensitive social media comments. So the writer's name is Sarah Zhang. She's a newly hired lead technology writer on the editorial side. And once it was announced, people kind of took a look at her Twitter and realized that she's been really uh, anti-white, very, very kind of racially insensitive postings on her Twitter. Um, I can't I can't read them here, but she has just uh, a bunch of stuff online that would not be allowed from anyone else. And we've seen something like this with Joanne Reed, who had those posts, which honestly, I wasn't kidding when I said she should have just said, that's what I believed back then. And now I don't believe that. Not because it would have made the social justice warriors and, and you know, babies feel any better, but because that's the truth. She used to be more conservative. Or should I say moderate? She used to actually have much more moderate beliefs. Now she does not. She's a hardcore leftist and her job kind of requires her to be that. I, I, what I don't understand is why she couldn't just say that's what I believed at the time instead of making up all these stories about being hacked. So they issued a statement about some of the things that she said. And part of the statement um, from them is she sees now that this approach only served to feed the vitriol, which we too often see on social media. She regrets it. And the Times does not condone it. So here's your master class in what to do if someone that's working on something is a conservative and people don't like something on their page. I mean, I'm just going by what, what this is what flies for Democrats. So clearly it should be able to fly for conservatives as well. Um, they also posted a statement from Ms. Zhang who said, and basically she used to write, she was a senior writer at The Verge. She said, the things that she sent out were counter trolling as a woman of color on the internet. What? I'm sorry. Woman of color. So this is my problem with all of this. The unique history of blacks in America, the slavery aspect is the reason why there's legislation surrounding trying to ameliorate those impacts. This woman has not experienced any slavery. She's not from a disadvantaged group. She's here in America and fantastic. She is not a white person, so I can give her that. But she's not a woman of color. Woman of color is a term that's reserved for us black folks. This is kind of ridiculous, but it's also just par for the course for people taking what is, uh, this is the legacy of slavery and the things that have been done to try to fix that, which I don't agree with all of them. Some of them had their place and now they should be eliminated like the affirmative action. I, I'm, I'm not down with that. But there's there's a history that's connected to it. And when other groups that have never been disadvantaged and have recently arrived in this country, basically arrived just in time to receive all of the benefits and wonder uh, that is America, try to claim a part of the history of the civil rights movement and the legacy of slavery in America, which is a relationship between people who used to own slaves, the U.S. government, and black people, we should see that as being disingenuous. We should see that Americans, including black Americans, we have worked hard to create what is now America. And blacks, back when 
black people didn't have the freedom or the the uh, com- complete ownership in America that we have today, when we weren't free or we were living under segregation, we still participated in the armed forces. We still helped to build a lot of the historic buildings that are now monuments in this country. We helped to build all of the buildings in the South, the ones that are still existing to this day, the plantation houses, all of that. We black Americans helped to build that during slavery and after. So the legacy that we have is one that is uniquely tied to the Anglo-Saxon heritage of America. That is not something you can say if you are a Chinese American who immigrated here and you were never a slave. No disadvantage to, you No, no shade. You're not a bad person or, you know, this, this isn't about making you feel bad about not having been descended from slaves, but your legacy is not the same as that of blacks who are descended from slaves and who have been here since slave ships brought their ancestors over here. Sorry, that's just not you. We need to stop allowing these people to assume that mantle because it's not one that belongs to them. The history is unique for black Americans. It's tied to white Americans and it's tied to this country. It's not derogatory towards others. It just doesn't include them. And when they take it on, they use it to try to excuse bad behavior like she's doing. And we shouldn't allow that. It shouldn't really it, having a uh, being a person of color shouldn't be your excuse for doing anything wrong. I mean, what what does that have to do with anything? So she says. As a woman of color on the Internet, I face torrents of online hate often along this vein. And then she gives examples of opportunities that people took to use a racial slur against her. Um, People acute saying they do violence to her because apparently she's a lesbian. And she says, as a result, I engaged in what I thought at the time as counter trolling while it was intended as satire. I deeply regret, regret that I mimicked the language of my harassers after candid conversations. The Times said Ms. Zhang understands that this type of rhetoric is not acceptable at the times and we're confident that she will be an important voice for the editorial board moving forward. So my issue with this is not that I feel like she should be fired. If they sat down with her and had a discussion and they're, they're fine with it, why is it not okay? Because she said things much worse than what Roseanne Barr said. Why is it not okay for Hollywood producers to sit down and have a chat with Roseanne Barr? She deletes her tweets and moves on about her business. Why is it that Roseanne Barr has to be completely blacklisted from Hollywood and eliminated while this woman is going to get to keep her editorial position? It's the double standard that stinks. Whatever decision they're making about her, it's it's not okay for them to do the same thing, to do, to do something worse to someone else who obviously now regrets what she said. She says she regrets what she said. Roseanne Barr regrets what she tweeted. Now, Prager University has suggested that Ms. Zhang was able to keep her job because her comments were directed against white men. These days, you can get into a lot of trouble for saying dumb, ugly, or offensive things on Twitter, says Prager, unless they're against white men, of course. Then you get a gig at the New York Times. The newspaper faced a similar situation back in February after announcing the hiring of Wired's Quinn Norton as their lead opinion writer on technology, which prompted a social media backlash over her description of white nationalist internet troll Andrew Arnheimer as a terrible person and an old friend. 
Ms. Norton had also used slurs against gay people, retweeted a racial slur. Hours later, she announced that she would no longer join the paper, and an editorial page editor, James Bennett, said they decided to go their separate ways. So I guess the response to me would be, oh, well, each situation is different, and each each situation has to be taken on its own in, in its own context. Okay, but there's still a standard that's obviously, there's two. One for people who are on the right and another one for people who are on the left. And that's not cool. Not in a country where we consider to be, people to be equal under the law, justice to be blind. But I guess these new rules really don't, uh, they don't encompass everybody. They just encompass the people on the left. So you can call in if you'd like. Um, we have the call lines open, 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. So we had uh, just a ton of other kind of news uh, going on. And one of the things that happened yesterday um, that we didn't really get a chance to discuss on the show was that the president had this huge meeting with leaders from um, the Christian community who happened to be black, black pastors. No networks covered the event. But President Trump hosted urban pastors at the White House for a roundtable about religion. Now, the White House has posted some footage of the remarks on YouTube, and Alveda King was one of the participants. And Trump actually said, quote, throughout our history, America's churches and religious leaders have called for change and inspired us to care for and hope, bring hope back to those in need. And then he opened the floor to the mostly black, and, and there were a couple of Hispanic pastors there. And those pastors praised President Trump as a friend who has empowered Christians in the White House, including Dr. Daryl Scott. He's a longtime member of the National Diversity Coalition for Trump, and he called President Trump the most pro-black president that we've had in our lifetime, saying the president actually wants to prove something to our community, our faith-based community and our ethnic community, which the last president didn't feel like he had to. Dr. Alveda King, who's the niece of Martin Luther King said she was honored to pray right here in the White House and said great things are on the horizon, I promise. And I have to say, he doesn't have to meet with black pastors. He doesn't have to have a roundtable on, uh, you know, religion in America with black pastors. Everyone that is a detractor of the president who calls him a racist, they completely ignore this. You know why this wasn't on CNN? Because they have to have guests on who will say the president is a racist. And it's one of the prerequisites for people who are on the right. If you want to go on CNN and do some commentary, they have to be pretty reliably sure that while you're giving your conservative commentary, you're going to at least agree with them that Donald Trump is a racist. If you're not going to, they're going to make sure that you're savaged by the other guests because they've got to make sure you know "Mm, you're you're not towing the line. You're not saying the things that you need to say. So I think... To see Hispanic and black faith leaders thanking Trump one by one for empowering them, for them to be able to go straight to the president and give updates about what's going on in their communities, what his policies are doing or are not doing, it's wonderful. And we should be getting some news about that from all of the media outlets. But this kind of imbalance that we're seeing is the reason why Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not going to defend the media. This and so many other things. 
it, it's just it's just it's not cool that they won't give him any opportunity to have any positive news, especially on the network on CNN. I talk about them specifically because that's where Jim Acosta is from. And they play 24 hours of nothing but, you know, I hate Trump. Uh, it's like a, a the background track to their lives. So we talked about the ridiculousness of the Medicare for All proposal, but I want to give you guys some specifics. And Brian June Depp, who's a physician over at the Daily Caller, he writes for the Daily Caller, calls Medicare for All like a cold sore. It appears randomly, lasts for a week or so, then disappears until next time. This week it's back and it's on Bernie Sanders' lip. The plan is not new. Uh, I, you know, John Conyers presented Medicare for All way back in 2003. He called it the United National Healthcare Act, or H.R. 676. And he had 25 co-sponsors for that piece of garbage. It went nowhere, but sat around dormant like a cold sore, and it keeps reappearing. Now, Senator Bernie Sanders is now holding the 15-year-old bill and running it through, trying to get it to be like basically this is the next step to Obamacare because Obamacare has failed and just being dismantled bit by bit. We're talking about something that he's proposing that dwarfs the entire budget of the United States, $32 trillion during their first 10 years of full implementation. Our current federal budget is $4.1 trillion. So $3.3 trillion a year, which is almost all of our $4.1 trillion budget. This is what's going on. I can't imagine this winning in November. I mean, anything's possible, but I can't imagine it. Happy Friday. God bless. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll be back with you on Monday. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.